Hawkins Policy Radio, offering a unique perspective on everything. Geopolitics, culture creation, the reality of the world we live in. Coming to you live from New York City, your host, Pierce Redmond. Okay, everybody, welcome back to another episode of Porkins Policy Radio. As always, I am your host, Pierce Redmond, and you can find this show here at American Freedom Radio, AmericanFreedomRadio.com, as well as on my website, which is PorkinsPolicyReview.com. And, of course, there are lots of ways to listen to the show. Uh, you can always follow me on uh, iTunes, on TuneIn, and Stitcher. We're also on YouTube, of course. And you can also listen later on in the week on Friday nights. I'm, I'm rebroadcast on a host of other Internet radio stations. And I am very excited to announce that uh, I will also uh, my show will also be replayed on KYAH, 5.40 a.m. in Utah, and that'll be Saturday nights from 6 to 8 uh, Mountain Time. And uh, and I'll talk a little bit more about that in the second hour because I um, don't want to take up too much time in the first hour. We are joined uh, by a uh, return guest and friend of the show, J.P. Satilli of NewsVandal.com, of course, the man behind the News Vandal Rundown, which I strongly encourage everybody to sign up for. Uh, J.P., how are you? Exhausted. <laughs> no, the news cycle, I've compared it. You ever go to the carnival and there's that ride called the zipper and it's this oblong mm-hmm. mechanism with these cages, usually like 10 cages that spin and then the mechanism itself spins as the cages spin. That's what the yeah. news cycle is like. It's oh, like, I, I'm, just, I, I'm just, uh, I don't know if you saw this. I was when during the intro for my show there, I just saw that. Saakashvili um, was arrested in Ukraine. He's a former yes. Georgian president. Yes. Now he's escaped, uh, yes. and he's in like a standoff on top of a building with the police. Have you seen this? Yes. As a matter of fact, that story <laughs> didn't even make the rundown today because, <laughs> well, this is the latest development because he was arrested, and then there was like a, like mob violence. Yeah. And he was, in a sense, broken out of captivity, and so now it's turned into this standoff. There's that happening at the same time. Just within minutes, it has been uh, announced, well, basically announced, or at least it went to Abbas and uh, the king of Jordan, that Trump is going to move the embassy to Jerusalem. Actually, what he's going to do is he's going to, and he's going to announce his intention to move the embassy. I think that's coming tomorrow. Oh, and at the same time, the Pentagon has announced that they have, they basically at this point intend to stay in Syria indefinitely. This is Pentagon spokesman Eric uh, Pahan, I guess that's how you pronounce it. We're going to maintain our commitment on the ground as long as we need to to support our partners and prevent the return of terrorist groups. Well, if you're going to be, if you want to pre- prevent the return of terrorist groups in Syria, considering mm. the vacuum that is there, particularly uh, uh, in the uh, eastern part of the country, you're there forever. So that was also announced just within the last 20 minutes. <laughs> and I, I'm, I'm laughing here because it that I, I mean the news cycle is really um, I mean forget 24 hours it's it's like 24 seconds right. sometimes I, I mean yeah. it, it 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 really is shocking I mean the um, the other day for instance I mean I was like at work 
I was at work taking notes for for our conversation today, and um, you know, in the second hour, we're, I'm going to be talking about uh, what's going on in Yemen. Uh, and uh, I was like on Twitter periodically while I was taking notes, and you know, you get that like panic feeling. JP, I'm sure you get this because you yeah. are you are a bit of a news junkie yourself. Um, and you're like when you're uh, say you're you're planning out what the rundown uh, email is going to be for the day. And you're like, oh, man, but is this important? Is that important? Am I missing something? You know, I must have scrapped like three or four different ideas I had for what we were going to talk about today. And now, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, as I'm talking to you, I'm looking at a video of, of Sakachvili being manhandled by Ukrainian <laughs> police, okay? Um, you know, I'm thinking about uh, Trump moving the embassy to Jerusalem. Um, JP, I mean, you, you are a little bit older than I am. Uh, is this like, you know, um, I know that people are, uh, I don't know, I'll, I'll hear like my parents and, you know, their friends kind of complaining, oh, well, you know, it's always kind of been like this. And, you know, you, you kids are so uh, crazy when you're, you're uh, you know, um, like, for instance, we were at like Thanksgiving, me and my sister, of course, were just like going on and on about, you know, Trump and politics and stuff. And my, my parents and their friends would sort of engage a bit. And then they'd be, oh, well, you know, we've already been through this. But I mean, is this – have we been through this? No. Uh, I mean this no. – the, especially the way the news cycle operates, I, I mean it, it's it, – I really, I really can't wrap my head around it. I mean it really feels like every day there's like three or four world-changing events. Um, what's – I mean this is, this is new, right, JP? Yeah, there are two ways to approach it. One is the reason why we're experiencing it is because of the availability of media. And I think one of the things that's doing this, that's driving this, is Twitter. Because one thing we've never had in the past is a real-time newswire accessible to everybody all the time. Quinnipiac just had a poll come out, right, showing that the the tax plan is has 29% approval, right? Independents are <laughs> against it, all this stuff. It's a terrible poll. Well, that poll, I was on Twitter, pops up, and within minutes – I have it on Facebook, and then I see it appear on two news, uh, cable news channels behind me 10 minutes later. That kind of pace is unprecedented. So on some level, the news cycle is re- reflective of the fact that a lot of information that would not have come through this pipeline that we always are plugged into, that's, that's what's new. I mean, th- there's always been constant news going on in the world. But then again, here's what I think is different is we've never had a presidency that is constantly pushing and contorting the news cycle in multiple directions all the time. And I think that's what's different because basically there's a whole level of noise that's there constantly that we are fighting through to try and get to all the stories behind the noise. And the fact that the, that the news business spends so much time on Trump and Trump's tweets Mm. makes it feel like there are seven different layers of news that we have to plow through to try and understand what's going on. If if that Trump layer wasn't there, I mean, this is the interesting thing about Trump's presidency versus Obama's presidency. I've been doing a weekly show on uh, Crew FM. It's online, too, if you're, if you're ever interested in listening to it. It's on Friday. It's called Inside the Headline. I used to do a full hour of it where I would break down like 40 stories in an hour. Um, 
And during the Obama years, what I noticed is is that we could really wrap our heads around individual issues and stories in ways that seems impossible today. And I think that this is one of the more pernicious aspects of the Trump presidency is that we are not really digging into some of these incredible pieces of journalism and investigative reporting that are coming out all the time. I mean, the Eric Prince thing mm. broke last night, for example, right? So that broke at eight o'clock. You got up this, get up this morning. This thing is dominating discussion. That's gone. That's already, that's, I know. See it. That's out of there. And I'm like, wait a minute. Don't we need to digest the fact that Eric Prince and Oliver North were coming together to create a independent secret intelligence agency that would be loyal only to the presidency? That seems important to me, <laughs> but yeah. it's gone. And as you, you know, and how much of that is actually a reflection of the way the news cycle has has changed to try and meet the exigencies of Trump's capriciousness and Trump's Twitter handle and Trump's all the stuff that Trump's doing? Because let's put it, let's be honest, the the media, the, particularly the the news media, uh, cable news media has been making money off of obsessing on Trump. So why wouldn't they obsess on Trump? And I think that that's part of why things seem out of control. Also, finally, I'm being long-winded here, I think Trump's presidency internationally has kind of lifted the – I don't want to say lifted the curtain, but there was always kind of a restrictor plate on things internationally because there was always – well, something's going to happen. Let's see how the White House responds. The White House has has always had a mechanism, whether it's Republican or Democratic Democratic uh, presidency. It's deliberate. It goes through a, uh, uh, an, a sort of an establishment and a bureauc- set of bureaucracies, whether it's the State Department or the Defense Department. Now it's really just one guy on Twitter, and as opposed to the the situation coming into the mechanism of the executive branch being processed and then regurgitated out as in the form of some kind of policy or statement, you have instantaneous pingback where if something happens, Trump could react to it real time and he is creating policy through his through whimsy as opposed to through a mechanism. No, no, and the it's it's I find it so fascinating too. Again, given the kind of um, I don't know, like spell that Trump has cast on most of the public, um, where you know, again, he portrays himself into many of his most ardent, uh, you know, cult members. He is above it. You know, he is this godlike figure, um, and and he's the exact opposite of the you know sort of phony. Um, Hollywood uh, mass-produced politicians that we get out there. But if anything, we've become, as a society, and cable news is the most guilty of this, even more sort of celebrity-obsessed, where we are so concerned with a tweet that that Trump might send out. I mean, um, for instance, I mean, and I almost don't even want to talk about it now because it just seems like a... Uh, deliberate tactic to kind of shift us away from the, uh, you know, Eric Prince story or Saakashvili or Yemen or any of these things. But, uh, you know, the, this ongoing Russia investigate, which I actually am now just, I'm done with it. You know, I just, <laughs> I, I don't care. I honestly don't care. He could have been 
meeting with Putin in an underground bunker. Okay, it could have been Putin and Trump and, you know, Assad and Dr. Doom and Adolf Hitler and anybody else. And I, I just don't even care anymore. Uh, and as much as I think there is something there uh, or, or there is there's something illegal, okay, it, it doesn't quite amount to this, um, you know, in the face of all of the other horrible stuff that's going on in the world, it, who really cares? Um, but in that, in that vein of, of, of speaking though, or thinking, there's, we now have this infamous tweet that appeared to imply that Trump knew Flynn was lying and all this right. stuff. Then, oh no, it was his lawyer, John Dowd, who tweeted it, you know, and then it's this, uh, well, let's decipher it, okay? You know, let's, let's pick apart the phrasing and the punctuation structure and, uh, the tone of this, of this tweet, you know, and it's a tweet. It's just a freaking tweet. Um, and uh, I mean, to me, of course Trump wrote it. Okay. And of course he's throwing his lawyer under the bus. If this is his lawyer, okay, this is the man that's supposed to be getting him out of jams. He's an idiot for, for, you know, tweeting something. And who, who takes your, you know, he's going to take his boss's phone. Okay. And then John Kelly couldn't do it. No, well, that was my whole thing was that John Kelly is, is you know, if the rumors are true, he, he can't stop him from tweeting. So the idea that somebody took the president's phone away from him and then composed a tweet that makes the president look bad in his own, you know, tone and voice and then sends it. I mean, it's, it's just ridiculous. But again, that is that was a news story. I, I mean, for hours last night. You know, hours. When I was thinking, been, it, yeah, it, it, I hasn't know. it hasn't stopped. It <laughs> hasn't stopped. And this is, and you said last night, I think this is an important thing. You do see a shift in the news coverage uh, for all three cable channels and maybe less so for CNN because CNN is the most, is, is in its own way is the most grotesque of the three because yeah. at least with MSNBC and, MSNBC and Fox, they say, okay, we got our morning program, Morning Joe and Fox and Friends, and then we're going to switch to something that approximates news. And we'll do news, and we'll pick, we'll, tr we'll try and cover stories for a while. And then when we get to about three or four o'clock, then we're going to go to our opinioneering. Yeah. And with CNN, it's all discombobulated and mashed up. You know, they don't really even have a delineation anymore because I don't, there's just no way I can consider anything that Wolf Blitzer does to be basically a news program. But, <laughs> um, but this is, this is the problem. And, you know, I know that there are people who think that, that particularly on the, you know, for MSNBC, it's because they have a liberal agenda or a democratic agenda and they're out to get Trump. And that may be there. But I think most of what MSNBC is doing is driving ratings because MSNBC prior to the 2016 election, they were pulling like on a, a total day viewership. And then there's the average day and total day, these different viewerships. But let's just – I'll give you a rough number because I follow these things pretty closely. They were pulling around 400,000 viewers a day, 400,000 that's, I mean, MSNBC was in crisis prior to the election. Now, Rachel Maddow, there a couple of times has, has challenged, you know, O'Reilly and Hannity and started getting, starts getting close to like 2 million viewers, 1.5, 1.6. Still with Fox being the leader and sometimes jockeying back and forth with MSNBC, we're talking about 2.5 million viewers total. And so, 
that's actually a you know when a country of 320 million people that's not a lot but in terms of cable news and advertising that is a lot a lot and so all the three cable networks have been pulling major profits CNN and MSNBC were not pulling profits prior to Trump now they're pulling profits and they're just basically giving the people what they think the people want and frankly the people must want it to a certain extent or at least the people who are watching it because they've turned these to uh, cable outlets into profitable enterprises and that's really what's sadly what's driving it because you know I, I mean I know you're down with this too if I want to see something I know that uh, 60 Minutes did a thing on Yemen a couple weeks ago and, and it was not really well received because it kind of whitewashed America's uh, involvement in supporting Saudi Arabia not just with, with bombs and, and weapons but also with uh, in-flight refueling of, yeah, and of political bombs. support as well. So and all the other support, but if I want to see what's going on inside Yemen, or if I want to see what's going on inside Ro- uh, Rohingya camps in in Bangladesh, I don't turn to the networks. I go to BBC. I mean, and I know that there are people in Britain who despise the BBC, but here in the United States, it's like an oasis because I can actually see stories for. There's stuff going on in Venezuela right now, and they're like, you know, Maduro's got this plan for cryptocurrency and stuff. That's really interesting stuff we should know about. It's very close. That's going on. Honduras? There's Honduras, which may have just had an election stolen. Yeah. yeah. You got Mexico, which has is – it has its own problem with murder and violence and and what seems to be an ongoing low-simmering – not that low-simmering, but – a war going on between drug cartels and the federales. I mean, there are all of these things that are going on. And by the way, we've totally forgotten about Puerto Rico. There are stories coming out about uh, how the hurricanes have have had a lasting effect on both Florida and Texas. All that stuff's tossed away, as you say, to parse a tweet. Yeah, to parse a tweet. And frankly, I agree with you. I think there is something there with with the Mueller thing and I mean we we could break that down too because I think people who have taken the, the the Flynn guilty plea and said see there's no there there look at how meager it is well that's prima facie because if you think about how Mueller's constructing this it seems to me as a RICO case where you you build all of the foundation around it to get to the house on top and you have to get all the low level people underneath it before you build the house on top of it um, you know I think that the obsession over every tiny little detail that leaks out is actually undermining people's interest in the case over time. That it's actually people are becoming numb and inoculated against it and, or numb to it, inoculated against it or indifferent to it. And that's just because it's great ratings to be able to push up, put up breaking news. Mm. Mueller's counsel announces blah, blah, blah. Watch us, watch us, watch us, and cut to commercial. Oh, yeah, no, no, for, yeah, Viagra or a bunch of other, uh, you know, prescription pills or, yeah, catheters or gold or, you know, all these things are going to kill you or, you know, are just a waste of your time and, and energy. Uh, no, 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 certainly. That's, and Pierce, that's an important point because if you look at a lot of the, ad, I always tell people, you know, if you, you know, television is the rectal thermometer in the rear end <laughs> of American culture. And if you want to know what's going on, you look at television. And if you want to know what's going on in a specific show, look at the advertisers buying for that program. And that tells you the intent of the program. 
Oh, which is why, you know, all, like, you know, Hannity and all the later Fox stuff, it's all, all crotchety old men, you yeah. know, who, who can't get it up. They can't, uh, apparently they have gout. Um, yeah. They need gold to, to save themselves. <laughs> from, gold. To me. I got gold for you, baby. Yeah. No, of course. I mean, it, it's, it's, it, yeah, it, it's ridiculous. Um, you know, the same way, like, I, you know, if you, if you turn on, um, I, I do it just almost out of spite, just so that it's not, you know, if I'm going to just have the news on, I'll put on Bloomberg or something. Uh, and that it's just like, oh, so this is actually just like the, you know, every commercial is for, you know, luxury airliner, um, you know, or, or you know, it's, it's a it's sort of elite of the elite. But it's the same thing. You can tell exactly by the commercials that are being played who, who this target is. Um, I guess I just I find it. I, I find it almost, I don't know, maybe this is like, you know, the conspiracy theorist in me, but almost, I mean, there's like this in, especially in the past few months, and I know that that doesn't mean much, but a serious sort of like shift in, in terms of there is so much happening in the world right now. I mean, it does at times feel as if we're, we're on some sort of a, a precipice or at a crossroads. Um, you know, we were, you were just rattling off a few things, but I mean, there's a, a serious election crisis in Honduras that could spill out into, I mean, full on violence. The, um, you know, one of the, I think the former president of Honduras, his son is in New York, I think it is, facing huge, huge, uh, a huge trial for massive drug trafficking. Okay, this is the son of the the leader that Obama and Clinton and that helped overthrow and then put in place. You know, so wonderful. Uh, the for Canadian, Yemen, for, by the way, for Canadian mining interests, that was yes. one of the one of the the key players there. Uh, Yemen is a literal powder keg that is just. I, I mean. There's, you know, we don't even have enough time to get into that. But, you know, it's like everywhere there are these serious, I mean, the, moving the, 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 uh, the capital to Jerusalem, that is huge, okay? That is not, uh, small potatoes. That is gonna have, I mean, that is one of those things, I mean, if, if Saudi Arabia is fine with that, then we've, we've reached a new level. Of well, so they can't. The you know, MBS, and I want to say MBS. I mean, <laughs> Mohammed bin Salman. He's basically the he's the ruler now. They're publicly going to come out against it. I think privately support it. I, right now, what I see is there is a private cooperation between Netanyahu, Mohammed bin Salman, and also oh, yeah. Jared Kushner. It is a triumvirate, and Kushner is there representing Donald Trump, and I think. Here's one of maybe one of the things that can explain this incredible pace of what's happening. I think in a lot of places what you have is you have governments that are facing issues of corruption. Right now, Netanyahu is facing major corruption charges. Yeah, so is his Mo- life. Multiple scandals and Haaretz detailing all the different cases against them. There are like six different aspects of it. There's the German sub thing and then the two businessmen who were lavishing his wife with gifts. There are a mm-hmm. bunch of these different things going on. Trump is facing a crisis here at home. Mohammed bin Salman is facing a crisis. There is, you know, the interpretation of what has been going on that I find most compelling is that last year the Saudis were having problems paying their own civil servants. They have a major budget crisis on their hands. This is one of the reasons why they want to get into this privatization. They want to privatize 200 
billion dollars worth of government assets inside Saudi Arabia. There's this talk about this hundred billion dollar uh, listing of Saudi Aramco on a stock exchange. Apparently, Trump through Kushner said to Saudi Arabia, "We will su- we will support you, Mohammed bin, Sal- bin Salman, if you uh, um, agree to list Saudi Aramco on the New York Stock Exchange." There's, I mean, there's all this stuff going on there. What you see in each one of these cases where I think MBS, who's got the war with Yemen, that's not going well, by the way, a regional conflict involving Iran is good for him domestically. A regional conflict for for Bibi Netanyahu is good for him domestically. A conflict in the Middle East in which Trump is siding with Israel, which will stoke support among the Christian Zionists, among the evangelicals, that is really the 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 most important part of his base of support, good for him politically. Oh, by the way, any kind of war heading into 2018, which looks like an electoral disaster waiting to happen, particularly now that we see these numbers coming out on the tax plan. I mean, whoa. If if Roy Moore gets elected and you've got to run on, we're the Republican Party. We're the party of Brigham Young and (laughs) – and. And taxes for the uh, uh, you know big tax cuts for the for the rich, that's not a great thing, a great you know electoral play for 2018 and a highly populist uh, uh, electoral environment. But if you have a war, see, so what I'm getting at is in a lot mm-hmm. of these cases, you look at all of these crises around the world. I think what you see are governments that are mired in corruption looking for scapegoats. Looking for ways out, looking for diversions. And I think we see maybe more diversions than we've seen in a long, long time and maybe, maybe more than ever before. A lot of these conflicts and these, these crises and these, um, news stories seem to me to be emerging out of a desire or a need to develop diversions. Oh, well, I mean, that's that's where I was going to go with that, too, is just that it, it seems that the media is also kind of playing up to this in that, um, you know, not necessarily that they're getting their orders from, I don't know, some shadowy group not to report on certain things. But the fact that they are picking apart tweets that the, the president may or may not have sent, the fact that it, it's more or less it's wall to wall coverage of, of you know if Mueller sneezes okay that, <laughs> yes. that's supposed to mean something yes and not on the 50 other important th- i mean not even that much on the tax bill not even that much domestically about about stuff let alone what's happening in uh you know everywhere from Myanmar to Yemen to Honduras to uh, apparently now Ukraine uh you know there, there's Egypt there's how about Egypt, Egypt? oh Sinai. yeah or, or I mean, there were at least two massive um, terrorist bombings in Somalia. Uh, yeah. You know, not even a blip on the radar. Oh, not, uh, and oh, by the way, not a blip on the radar. The the story by the Daily Beast last week, great investigative story on uh, U.S. special forces likely having mm-hmm. killed mm-hmm. ten civilians, including a a, a a baby, a you know, a child under the age of three. I think it was. That story came and went. You know, it, I, you make a great observation it's not that they're taking orders and this is i worked in the media in washington dc for some time and i could tell you it's not that these that these organizations are taking orders it's that these organizations are easy to lead around they have a pack mentality and it's cheap 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 to just cover a tweet 
you get some personalities to come in, you get them around a round table and you spend you spend an hour talking about tweets and, and other mm-hmm. news stories that other agencies broke. You don't have to send reporters to Myanmar. You don't have to send reporters to the Sinai Peninsula. You don't have to send reporters to Honduras. You don't have to send – that's expensive stuff. That's overhead. What's the cheapest, highest profit margin form of news is sitting around and talking about other people's stories. Oh, it, it's like uh, – I've been complaining about this uh, with uh, uh, Tom Secker, friend of the show. We constantly – are, are going off about this, but the fact that you know it, it, it's considered reporting today to maybe even look at something controversial. Okay, it could be a controversial topic, and then instead of actually going out and interviewing people or perhaps doing research and you know looking at a historical perspective on something, they just pull a bunch of random tweets from people online. Oh well, you know Joe Blow said this, and you know uh, Jane Doe said this. And they, you know, and that's, that's like the basis of journalism is we'll just pull a bunch of tweets, okay, slap together a couple generic kind of like opening and closing paragraphs. And, you know, that's a, that's a, a newsworthy article. That, that's, that's fine. That's my day is done. Um, you know, uh, I'm going to just, I guess, knock off early and, you know, go to the bar or whatever. Uh, and it, it's like across the board. I guess it's just – I know I'm probably like preaching to the choir and this isn't anything new. But it, it does feel as if we're being lulled more and more into like a scary kind of a mindset. Um, and it's interesting because, you know, you said at the top of the, the conversation, JP, I mean we are in, a, in an era of like constant news or, you know, we uh, – in, instead of, um, you know, it used to be you needed to be a fairly large – a news outlet, you know, you had to have like a, like an AP wire service or yep. something like that. Now everybody and, has it, and those aren't yeah. And at that time, you know, AP wire service is not cheap. I mean, right, this is exactly. what's amazing. Instead of spending a hundred thousand dollars a year to have a Bloomberg terminal or something, right? You're, I mean, it's just it. You just you don't even need one. No, no, I know. It's right there. You know, it it reminds me of something. Probably one of my favorite uh, analyses of U.S. media, of the U.S. media environment, came from Marilyn Manson in <laughs> Bowling for Columbine. And he summed it up very simply. He said, we are trapped in a cycle of fear and consumption. And the fear is used to drive the consumption. And it's and it becomes like obvious in things like Jim Baker selling buckets of food for the apocalypse. I mean, if you just want to boil it down, that, that fear and consumption, that's what Alex Jones' model is, a cycle of fear and consumption. That's why William Devane is selling gold in between, uh, you know, uh, during commercial breaks on Fox News. Mm-hmm. Fear and consumption, fear and consumption. I actually think the consumption side of the of the equation is breaking down. And, uh, you know, we're not... Consumption is not rising. It's not, we're not getting the consumption bumps. We have a, a stock market that's going through the roof and we hear about all this growth and oh my God, GDP is up 3%. A lot of that growth is in financialization. It's not in consumption. It's not in the, in the making and buying of things per se. So, you know, I think everywhere we look, the dominant paradigm that we have lived in, one that was solidified by American empire, 
And what was American Empire's primary goal? It was to secure the hydrocarbon economy. We got to make sure that the oil gets out of the Middle East, gets it through the world, gets gets to factories. Those factories build things. The people who who work in the factories make money so that they can buy the other stuff that comes out of the other factories. And then there'll be a tax base that we use to fund the military. Then the, we'll use the military to secure the shipping routes for the oil, and that works like a perfect charm. And I think that system is breaking down, and I think the American unipolar moment is breaking down. And ironically, I think Donald Trump is, in a way, it's kind of a, it's kind of a gift, to be honest. If you are somebody who thinks that American empire is not that great of an idea – he is unintentionally dismantling it at a very rapid rate. And as a German foreign minister, it's funny, I used it on the rundown today, and I had a, a couple different versions, but I just decided to go with the RT version of it just to be a jerk. Just, you know what I mean? Uh, just, you know, just to thumb my nose at some you know, people go, oh, why are you using RT? Because it was really, it was based on a quote, and the German foreign minister said, you know, the American moment is over, and now we, the EU, have to step up and take control of our own foreign policy because we can no longer depend upon the United States. And I don't know if Donald Trump is doing that, that specifically intentionally, but I think that you're, you know, around the world now, President Xi of China is considered kind of the de facto world leader. And China is considered the world's kind of number one power. I mean, you know, not militarily because they spend a fraction on their military uh, compared to the United States. One of my favorite uh, factinos in a lot of the recent work I've been doing, I'm doing a lot of stuff on military budget, but the the increase in the U.S. defense budget, just the NDAA, the National Defense Authorization Act, not the whole totality of defense-related spending, the nuclear weapons and the homeland mm -hmm. security and the veterans. That's usually a trillion, trillion plus. But the, just the defense budget for, for 2018 is around $700, million, $700 billion, excuse me. That, that inc that's an increase of about $80 billion over last year's defense budget, okay, the, the last Obama budget. That is actually almost double – the increase <laughs> is almost double Russia's entire military budget. Oh, yeah. It's, it's shocking. It's, a, it's, and so, it's appalling, and, actually. And, 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 you know, Russia's our number one enemy. So anyway. Yeah. Uh, so and China, you know, China's at about, you know, $140 billion, $138 billion. You know, the numbers are squishy depending on who you go with because China's not the most transparent. But, but so, so here's China – Basically, the economy is now matching the United States. China's prestige surpasses the United States in many places now. President Xi says, "Yes, I'm going to, I am going to be the guarantor of the international free market system, and I am going to be the the the, the guarantor of the Paris climate deal." You know, basically, Pierce, the the new American century is over. It's over. <laughs> And I think that's also one of the things that's generating a lot of this movement, all these moving pieces everywhere, because there is a vacuum. There is a palpable vacuum, and and within that vacuum, there is room to maneuver that has not existed in the recent past. Oh, absolutely, and I think uh, obviously the uh, 
policymakers, you know, these think tank eggheads and you know, <laughs> people in Washington and, and also, you know, financial people here in New York and there's a lot of think tanks and foundations here in New York as well. I think they can kind of smell that in the water. Yeah. And uh, and that is, of course, sort of permeating out to the media class and, and whatnot that also kind of understands this. And that's why, you know, in part, again, uh, what's the big thing? Uh, Lindsey Graham saying, well, we should start moving out all military families out of South Korea, okay, because it's we're going to go to war very soon, uh, so we should get the women and children out of South Korea. Uh, you know, nothing about the Korean people, uh, but right. just the, you know, wives and, and children of, of uh, servicemen. Um, you know, uh, I saw something, you know, recently with uh, John Bolton, just uh, more or less stating it's an inevitable fact that we are going to go to war with North Korea. Now, obviously, that's John Bolton. But it's John Bolton. The, 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 um, I think the, the sort of casual nature with which people are talking about war with North Korea, um, as A, as if it's inevitability, but also B, that it's just like, yeah, it's just war. It's just war with North Korea. It's not, it's not that big a deal. You know, we'll be done by Christmas. Um, you know, and, and again, it, it's like you can kind of get this sense that they're feeling, you know, the la- you know, the, the final nail in the coffin. On uh, the, the American Empire, the American century, and I don't—it's not going to like die overnight. And obviously, uh, you know, groups like the CIA and others will, of course, continue to uh, flourish and, and do their thing. But it does seem as if uh, there, this um, shift is being felt on all sides, and then, of course, then that you know permeates or trickles all the way down to these right-wing yahoos, you know, on Twitter and, and whatnot, that, you know, they, they all, all they can possibly do is, is, is complain about the most trivial BS imaginable, okay, or how, you know, the white man is the most oppressed group on the planet, um, you know, everyone in Hollywood is a, a pedophile or uh, some sort of sexual assault predator, uh, you know, and they'll never look, you know, that's like, I see that over and over again. It's just like, well, look at what that person did. Look at that person. Never for a moment being like Roy Moore, uh, virtually every, you know, every, I mean, everybody, you know, it doesn't left or right. I mean, there was, I think I'm going to talk about this later tonight on Chuck show, but I mean, uh, more confirmation came out in a daily beast article recently, um, uh, confirming that Donald Trump and Jeffrey Epstein are very, very good friends. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. Uh, I mean, even more so than we than we were previously led to believe. Okay, so I mean, this is like on all sides, but you know, it. it I don't know. I, I mean, uh, again, I'm sure I'm kind of like beating a dead horse here. Well, it, no, go that, ahead, JP. No, I, empires rarely collapse overnight. Mm-hmm. You know. And so if you look at how, you know, when did the Roman Empire actually collapse? Was it was the functional end, you know, in, in the in the 5th century, was it in the 3rd century, was it with the sacking of Rome by 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 the German barbarians, was it was it when Constantine accepted Christianity, made it the 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 religion of the of 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 the empire? I mean, when is when is it? It it's something that happens over time. I think the Moral, the seeming moral decay, as something I think I mentioned on this show in the past, the inability to to make sense of the gap between stated ideals and actual behaviors. I think that 
that that is reminiscent of a society or an empire that's lost its way. And I think you see it everywhere. And so this is another place where Donald Trump is, has done a service because Donald Trump's presidency and the evangelicals' support for Donald Trump's pe- presidency has metastasized into a whole lot of unintentional truth-telling about their, tr- about their motives and about their willingness to compromise their stated ideals for basically for cash, right, mm-hmm. for money. I mean that's what's that's what's that's the glue that's holding the Republican Party together, and that's the glue that's holding the evangelicals together with with Donald Trump and with Roy Moore on some level, right? Is that we we want to make sure that these little key parts of our agenda. I've heard uh, Ralph Reed say that that if, if this is for tax cuts, this is Ralph Reed, Mister you know Christian Coalition guy. So oh yeah, on all of these in all of these different ways, you know the the empire. We'll, we'll call it the empire instead of the emperor, is completely naked now. And it's naked to the world. It's naked to the people on the in, inside the United States. And I think for the people in the United States, there are two ways to deal with it. Go into abject denial. Uh, three ways. Denial, um, complete dis, just disinterest. I'm just going to disconnect or activity. Uh, I think luckily for us, women are going with activity. And – and I think the more women who get involved in the electoral process, that's got to, that, that can only be a good thing at this point. Um, because I think the Me Too movement is a massive revolution in the way our culture and our, our society is going to be organized. Um, and I mean, we could talk about the excesses and the sort of the pendulum swings on that if you want, but we are, we are sorting out a whole new way of doing things and, I still believe that Donald Trump is not the beginning of something. I think he's at the end of something. I think that this is the death rattle. This is the death rattle for those white guys who say, man, forever we had it made. Well, you know what? <laughs> you know what, guys? You kind of haven't had it made for 30 years. It, it, you know, it's just that it's taken a long time for the, for the boom to be ultimately lowered to the point at which it's obvious that you are in the boiling water. There's a sort of, I'm mixing my metaphors there, the boiling frogs thing. But, you know, I think we're all waking up to the, not we all, many of us are waking up to the fact that the water around us is boiling. And we thought we were in a hot tub, but we're actually being cooked. And I think as it, that this dawns on people in so many different aspects of life, they react. Um, and Donald Trump was – his election was this kind of last gasp at trying to make America great again. Let's go back to something that was. Look, it's all over. And I know that you know there's been a late, recent spate of stories about AI is not performing the way people think it will. All I know is this, is that there was a, a uh, an, an AI-driven car tested uh, at a at – a, at a lab outside of, I think it was outside of, uh, outside of Trenton. I know it's in New Jersey. I think they may have been connected to Princeton or whatever. And the car was learning to drive by watching human drivers. And once the car was set off on its own to drive, the, the scientists who were working on the car determined that they could not figure out how the car was making its decisions, how the artificial intelligence was making its cognitive leaps to make its decisions. So we're on the cusp of something revolutionary with 
not just 3D printing, but 4D printing. And 4D printing is, is not just, you know, you have a 3D printer. No, 4D printing is where you can create a material that you can program to assemble itself on the fly and to make changes in its construction to adapt to different circumstances. So we're, and then we have, we have the robot revolution coming. You know, do you think Amazon isn't going to, they're, they're, they're extending Amazon's like the Borg of, of the consumer world. Yes. And they are going to become a Borg. How long is it going to be until Amazon says the most efficient way to deliver is to have a, a blimp flying over metropolitan areas that is fed by drones, supplied by drones, and then when you order a little supply drone, delivery mm-hmm. drone takes it to your front door. That's, I mean, this is, we're, you know, everything is, is changing and it's changing in fundamental ways. And I think that we're having a hard time squaring all of these circles because we're used to a world that was. We're not sure about a world that is, and we have no idea about the world that's coming, but it's coming very, very quickly. No, absolutely. And excuse me, I think that's, uh, like you said, I mean, this is the whole make America great is stupid slogan. I mean, it's, is obviously, you know, this sort of desperate attempt to cling on to this. Um, and yeah, I, I, I mean, I completely agree with, with everything you were saying there. And again, I think this is, again, indicative of the, the, the sort of frustration that we see amongst so many people and also the way that the, you know, the media is, is sort of playing their part in, yes. um, kind of, uh, focusing on, on, on the, the sort of trivial stories or again, focusing on the, look what they're doing. You know, they're trying to change us, you know, and, and they're trying to uh, tell us that we can't, um, be the way that we've always been, which is never, you know, really true. Um, you know, and you get that a lot on, on Fox and stuff like that. Um, but also on, on all of them, you know, they're, they're all kind of like this. Uh, and it's just as sort of a futile attempt, you know, it's just, it's not going to happen. Um, and, uh, I don't know, I guess I'm, I'm just, I guess I'm just still kind of struck by that. Uh, and maybe that's because I've obviously never known, you know, the, I mean, nobody really, you know, it, it's not like any of us have, have actually seen, you know, America before it was a, a global empire, but to begin to see the kind of chinks in the armor of this, uh, massive empire begin to kind of, uh, be, you know, become visible, uh, and to actually sort of start to take their toll, um, where, like you said, where suddenly China isn't just, um, you know, uh, this crazy, um, uh, country that has a seat at the UN. Suddenly people are going to China to solve problems. Yep. Uh, they're going to Russia to solve problems. Yep. You know, particularly geopolitical ones. Um, and same with China. I mean, you, you look at, you know, uh, any progress that's going to happen in Afghanistan with the Taliban is going to be China, is going to be one of the arbiters, um, you know, between the Taliban and the central government in Afghanistan. They have been for a long time during this, this, this sort of stalled peace process there. So, yeah, I, I guess I'm just um, I'm just amazed, you know, uh, <laughs> with all of the, this this change, which is scary, I guess, you know, but at the same time, I mean, it's it's. You know, I think it, it is sort of an exciting time to be alive. But instead, it's, uh, you know, well, what did he tweet? Oh, my God. You know, I'm going to go on my own Twitter rant now, uh, you know, tweeting about his Twitter rant. Uh, and it, it's, I, I, yeah, I don't know. Um, well, but, and, but, but you were on it early, Pierce. It's it's the celebrification of everything. Mm-hmm. And, and I, something I've said in the past is I think that 
Donald, you know, we have a representative democracy. I think Donald Trump is the most representative president I've seen in our in my lifetime. <laughs> I don't think anybody represents who we are as a popular culture more than Donald Trump. I mean, he's he's the avatar of reality television, of narcissism, of celebrity, of materialism, of, materialism, of, of all of it. I mean, we have an orange president. So <laughs> – what is that? It's you know. I know everybody wants to say, well, what does that say about him? But what does it say about us? I think that's the more interesting question. And as we try and sort all of this out, I think one of the things that I am most – two things I'm concerned with. One, something we haven't talked much about, which is is what's going on in the Middle East and the desperation of somebody like a Trump or a Netanyahu or Mohammed bin Salman who I think – you know, one of the reasons why the Ritz Carlton has been turned into a prison is and is filled with all of the other princes and and all of his cousins is because he needed to abscond eight hundred billion dollars in advance of this desire to turn Saudi Arabia into a financial empire as opposed to an oil empire because because they all know that peak oil is is not just coming but it's here and that oil the, the demand for oil is never going to be what it was. 15, 20, 30, 40 years ago. So they want to, they want to get into financialization to catch up with, with, with the United States and Germany and, and Britain, which are all financializing economies. Germany, the, the least of the three. Then you have this. So to me, the Middle East now is, is, is this, this place where you have interests that need some kind of, may need some kind of conflict. To preserve themselves, that frightens me. The thing that that disappoints me the most is that uh, is that we've had two major releases on financial malfeasance, the Panama and the Paradise Papers, and Donald Trump's administration, this drain the swamp administration, which I call Swamp the Drain, may be the single most corrupt administration I've ever seen in my lifetime. We just had Alex Azar. He's going to replace Tom Price. Tom Price was HHS, and when he was in Congress, he was basically inside trading off of congressional uh, um, legislation uh, related to medical devices and making a huge amount of money on it. Then, So he gets bumped on the, the plane ride stuff. Now Alex Azar goes in there. He was at Eli Lilly. When he was at Eli Lilly, Mr. Pharma guy, he, he tripled the price of an insulin drug that has been around for 100 years. Tripled the price, just tripled the price. And so people were going out without insulin, which actually cost people lives most likely. Now he's in charge of, of going to be in charge of HHS. Pharma, Eli Lilly is literally going to be in charge of that. What about our economic policy? Goldman Sachs is in charge of that. Who is one of, Don, you know, two of Donald Trump's biggest constituencies, the oil industry and the Saudis as an adjunct and the defense industry. The defense industry is is it's you know basically boom time for them the oil industry is going to get their hands on bear, bears ears now thanks to Ryan Zinke so you have all yeah. of the all of these things are going on and we're not paying attention to it and you don't ha- I mean if I look if I if I was an uh, an executive editor and I said boy man I'd really like to get that Donald Trump you know what I would spend all my time doing exploring every avenue of corruption inside of his administration that's what I would be doing, and it would be the the benefit of it is is that it's actually what a journalist should be doing, and I think yeah. it's the most effective way to check his power 
is to sh- is to show the areas in which he is acting in complete contradiction to his promises. Now, I know that he has this cultic following, and a lot of them are not going to are not going to ever be convinced. But you want to know what? Maybe a lot of them we find that they are never convinced is because they're never giving a given a convincing argument other than his tweets. Yeah, I know. Well, I, I know. I know. It, it, it's uh, well, and it, it becomes a sort of partisan bickering. Uh, where you know, oh, they're, you know, well, they're just you're going after him because they're they're leftists or something like that. I know where it's like uh, hard. That's why you know uh, I, I do it sort of smugly on Twitter. But you know, every time someone is harping on about how you know Trump is going to get the pedos and this that and yeah. and you know uh, you know I just there's some wonderful wonderful pictures from uh, you know one as early as 2000 of Trump Melania. Uh, Jeffrey Epstein and Ghislaine Maxwell all together at Mar-a-Lago. Okay, I mean it, it's just a you know the evidence is there as you say with this corruption. I mean Wilbur Ross, Wilbur I mean, Ross, this guy is Ugh. dirty as the day is long, uh, and nobody even I mean can people even name the department you know he's he's in charge of? Uh, I mean it's it's like he doesn't exist, um, and and just openly corrupt. Um, I mean it, it's still I mean it, it's. How you know he's going after the big banks with with uh, Mnuchin, uh, you know, in, in the White House. I mean, it, it, the whole. I know what you mean. It, it, it's. I mean, you're just sort of banging your head on a wall. But again, nobody's actually doing the, the sort of due diligence of a journalist. Well, no, um, it's happening in it's happening in print, and it's happening online. There are guys like David Dayan, who's like I don't I don't think the guy ever sleeps. I mean, he <laughs> or literally. It's happening in in print and online. It's not happening in television. And I think that we have to really accept that that television is entertainment. Mm-hmm. And all that news is mostly entertainment. It really is. It's all done for entertainment value. It's all done for ratings. It's all done for money. And, 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 and in a sad kind of way, this is this is the gift of – of two layers of deregulation, one under Reagan and then the killer deregulation under Bill Clinton. I mean, you know, we could talk about, I, we talk, I always talk about, you know, Reagan, Reagan, Reagan. Bill Clinton finished Reagan's administration. The whole Reagan agenda was finished by Bill Clinton. And since then, we haven't had public interest journalism and particularly not on television. And so if you're looking for journalism on television, you, you're going to be looking for a long, long time. <laughs> right. Well, no, and I would say uh, the best place to look for journalism, of course, is right here uh, on my radio show and with people like J.P. Satilli of News Vandal. J.P., thank you for joining me in the first hour. Wow, that was a quick hour. Great to be with you, Pierce. <laughs> American Freedom Radio. American Survival Wholesale is a proud sponsor of the American Freedom Radio. And when you purchase quality products from AmericanSurvivalWholesale.com, you help support this program. 
Our quality non-GMO foods do not contain MSG, high fructose corn syrup, or heavy metals. At American Survival Wholesale, you can choose from over 8,000 quality products, including self-defense weapons, bug-out bags, and long-term storable food at wholesale prices. We also have custom food packs available, including gluten-free, dairy-free, and vegetarian packs. If we don't have it, you don't need it. American Survival Wholesale is a veteran-owned and operated company, which also supports our veterans in need, and we are very active in disaster relief. If you would like to become a distributor, please email us at bugoutamerica at usa.com or call 818-720-0759. We offer free consultations to answer all your questions. Do it today while things are calm. That's americansurvivalwholesale.com. We all know that they're not telling us the truth. So stand up for your rights, demand the real medicine, and your right to use it and grow it. This is Rick Sensen, and you're listening to American Freedom Radio. And I hope people support American Freedom Radio. And I hope people vote with their dollars and really understand the value of having American Freedom Radio. Because that's my family. If you love me at all, Jack Blood, support American Freedom Radio. Like, my family has literally disowned me in American Freedom Radio. Danny and Don and those guys, those are my actual family. So please, please support these guys because they have all the technology. They have all these great things that they're going to do. But obviously, they can't do it all by themselves. So not only would I like to see you support them, I'd like to see you retweet them and repost them and really get involved and get on the the bandwagon, so to speak, on doing that do-it-yourself promotion because they're a do-it-yourself radio network, and, and we just need that so much. I don't like words that hide the truth. I don't like words that conceal reality. I don't like euphemisms. And American English is loaded with euphemisms because Americans have a lot of trouble dealing with reality. Americans have trouble facing the truth. So they invent the kind of a soft language to protect themselves from it. I'll give you an example of that. When I was a little kid, if I got sick, they wanted me to go to the hospital and see the doctor. Now they want me to go to a health maintenance organization. Smug, greedy, well-fed white people have invented a language to conceal their sins. It's as simple as that. The CIA doesn't kill anybody anymore. They neutralize people. The government doesn't lie. It engages in disinformation. Israeli murderers are called commandos. Arab commandos are called terrorists. Contra killers are called freedom fighters. Well, if crime fighters fight crime and firefighters fight fire, what do freedom fighters fight? They never mention that part of it to us, do they? Never mention that part of it. You're listening to AmericanFreedomRadio.com, the network who perseveres in delivering intelligent debate, constructive dialogue with true independence. The freedom to broadcast the truth is not free at all. So what is American Freedom Radio worth to you? The empowering information with fun, honest and pure integrity behind it provides an example to follow. Friendships to flourish with the moral altruism that pulls no punches. The hosts sacrifice and show remarkable discipline in their duty to deliver quality radio in service to the community with strength, wisdom, and loyalty. The founders of AFI wish to thank you personally for sharing your views and insights to make the best radio and alternative media. Now it's time for you to give something back and play a vital role in the future of America. Be as generous with us as we've been with you. Click on the donate banner at AmericanFreedomRadio.com or volunteer by emailing AmericanFreedomRadio.com. Vaccine, psychotropic drugs and artillery batteries not included.
to Porkins Policy Radio. I am your host, Pierce Redman. Uh, if you're just joining us right now, in the first hour, we were talking with J.P. Satilli of NewsVandal.com, uh, and we, we actually we, we barely touched on anything that um, you know J.P. and I had planned on uh, touching on and discussing, I think, last week when we, um, we uh, were figuring out uh, when we were going to record. Uh, and, and I'm actually kind of glad because I think um, – uh, you know, rather than just sort of rattle off um, some news, as as JP and I were talking about, I mean, the news cycle is such that it's kind of hard to uh, to do a show um, when uh, stuff is changing. I mean, just some 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 breaking news right now. This is from uh, RFERL. Uh, the headline: Ukrainian prosecutors call for manhunt after Saakashvili freed from custody. And um, apparently, they, they've, they've, the Ukrainian authorities have called for a manhunt for former Georgian President Mikhail Saakashvili hours after his dramatic escape from police custody in Kiev. Um, and uh, yeah, the, the announcement by uh, the, the prosecutor general's office, blah blah blah. I mean, this is crazy stuff. Um, but again, so nothing I, I prepared for at all. Um, and uh, and of course, now I'm like, oh man, I wish I wish I had known about this earlier. But anyway, um, a, a couple uh, quick little things I um, forgot to mention uh, in the um, in the first hour, but I just wanted to thank uh, recent uh, subscriber Gray for signing up to Patreon. Uh, so thank you, uh, of course, to everybody who uh, is a um, a patron of mine on Patreon. Uh, we're we're really moving along on Patreon. We're getting getting some good. Uh, Feedback from people uh, who you know are enjoying the, the uh, bonus podcasts and stuff like that, and um, you know we're, we're starting to you know get some some real money going there, uh, which of course is a huge help to me. Um, if you if you haven't already, of course the uh, Tom Secker and I finished our uh, series on House of Cards, and I want to say sometime. Well, it'll definitely be be- before the end of December. That's a promise. Uh, but perhaps either next week or the week after that, we will have the final uh, uh, subscriber podcast for the year 2017. And we're going to be speaking with our good friend Chuck Ocelli all about South Park Season 21. So catch up on the uh, the season if you have not already uh, so you can uh, listen to uh, Chuck and I uh, discuss it. 
Uh, and also, uh, I mentioned this uh, at the, the top of the uh, the first hour, but I just wanted to give a very big thank you to Michael Powers over at KYAH 540 AM in Utah for uh, giving me this amazing opportunity to be picked up uh, out there. Uh, and the range on the station is is uh, pretty huge, it's like almost the, the entire state of Utah. Um, there's even like I think on – uh, the the uh, fringe. There's even some some places in um, Nevada that can pick it up as well. So very exciting. As I said, I'm going to be on uh, six to eight p.m. I think that's Mountain Time in Utah. Uh, so six to eight p.m. out in Utah, you can hear me on uh, KYAH five forty a.m. Uh, and of course, this means no more cursing. Uh, so I'm you know something I'm going to have to uh, try and enforce with my guests and with myself. Uh, so, you know, if you loved the cursing, all the more reason to sign up um, to Patreon because we can curse as much as we want over there. But anyway, um, I guess we, we should kind of uh, uh, begin uh, the, the topic of the second hour here. Um, and uh, that is, of course, uh, something that we've been discussing on the, the show, uh, I'm glad to say, f- you know, fairly regularly. And that is the uh, ongoing crisis in Yemen. So on Monday morning... Uh, I woke up, as I'm sure many of you did, to discover the news that former president of Yemen, Ali Abdullah Saleh, had been killed by Houthi rebels uh, just outside Sana'a, the capital, uh, while he was fleeing to, um, I can't, I think, uh, Mirbel, I believe was the, 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 the town or city that he was fleeing to. And, um, I mean, this is uh, pretty huge. Um, people may have seen the footage of Sala. Uh, I don't, um, I wouldn't encourage anybody to, you know, to, to seek it out. It is pretty graphic. Um, you know, like most of his head is missing. Uh, but it, it reminded me instantly when I, I, I did watch the footage, uh, unfortunately. And it instantly made me think, uh, back to, uh, Colonel Muammar Gaddafi. Uh, very similar, you know, sort of this, um, you know, a uh, bunch of um, fighters, you know, you know, screaming and they're sort of celebrating uh, and, you know, praising that uh, that Salah has finally been killed. And, uh, you know, it's sort of this nondescript location, you know, just sort of looks like an open desert. Uh, there's not there's no landmarks or anything. And they've got this they've got Salah in the back of a car you know, with uh, blankets around him, and then they, they, you know, pulled the blankets off and they showed some ID cards and stuff to confirm it was solid. I mean, it, it is solid. There's no doubt about that. And um, so I thought I, uh, I mean, this was so big for me that, uh, you know, in terms of, of solid dying, because, I mean, for people that are unaware, I mean, he ruled as president of, um, I guess, this sort of modern unified Yemen from 1990 to 2012, um, of course, when he was ousted uh, as a result of the uh, Arab Spring, uh, and of course, a lot of the other forces that are that are at play right now also contributed to that. Uh, and since 2012, of course, um, this sort of brutal—not quite 2012, but in the aftermath of that—a um, serious violence began to erupt all over Yemen. And then this, of course, would evolve into um, the very brutal current civil war that we see going on that, that uh, I guess officially began in 2015. But we'll get to that a little bit later. Uh, and, um, you know, this is seen 
everybody being involved. We have Sala was involved, um, and the, the you know the uh, support of various tribes that were loyal to Sala, as well as um, powerful military factions. A lot of former military um, were very close to Sala. Sala was in the military. He definitely doted on um, the military, so he was able to curry a lot of favor with them. Uh, but you you have the Houthis. Um, which are a, uh, a revolutionary movement. Uh, we'll, we'll, again, we'll, we'll talk about them a little bit later, but in the north of the country, you had the Southern Secessionist Movement, the Southern Movement, um, which uh, got involved in the fighting. Uh, then, of course, you had Al-Qaeda and then later ISIS, uh, as well as um, you know other sort of radical jihadi groups uh, that were, were popping up here and there. Uh, not, and then, of course, not to mention... Uh, then you have uh, Mansour al-Hadi, who the, the Saudi puppet that was uh, put in place uh, at the behest of um, uh, Obama and Hillary Clinton after Saleh was um, uh, removed from office or ousted from office. You had uh, him, then the Saudis are involved. And, of course, there is this um, perception, which is has some truth but not a lot, that Iran is involved in this. So there's a lot... Uh, that's been going on in Yemen, which of course makes it such a difficult uh, and complex topic to talk about. And obviously, you know, full disclosure, we're barely going to scratch the surface here. But I, I just kind of wanted to talk about a little bit about the history of Yemen. And I know I've touched on this here and there on the show before, but um, again, you know, when I when I saw that that Saleh had died, um, and uh, you know, I was sort of trying to find some stuff that might be interesting to, to, to talk about on the show, as well as just sort of seeing what people were putting out there about Salah. There was, um, you know, the, of, of course, this sort of immediate jump to, um, to, to, to have everybody sound like a, an expert on Yemen um, and uh, the geopolitics of Yemen and all that stuff. And, uh, and almost all these people, I mean, it's, it's a very cursory knowledge. And I'm not saying I'm an expert at all. But there's very little historical background. You know, they'll talk about, well, you know, um, Salah, who had, of course, fought the Houthis um, on and off for decades, um, had then formed an uneasy alliance with the Houthis, um, and uh, they were sort of fighting together, and they were, uh, you know, sort of um, making ground all over Yemen, and they were becoming a, you know, pretty serious force. And that since, um, I don't know, past couple of months or so, the situation had begun to deteriorate. And then Saleh again switched sides. Uh, he was in negotiations with Saudi Arabia. And then most recently, I think it was on Saturday, he officially said, you know, that uh, we're done with the Houthis and, you know, the Saudis are, are the good guys again uh, and we need to overthrow the Houthi government. And this, of course, was a huge, huge misstep on, on, the, on Saleh's behalf and definitely on um, MBS who uh, JP was talking about quite a bit in the first hour, a huge, huge, idiotic mistake. Um, because now, of course, Saul is dead. But a lot of that is just sort of, uh, it, oh, it's just accepted as fact when you hear these um, like news reports and, and especially, you know, articles as well. They give you these little soundbite things. And then, of course, this is all sort of couched in, well, this is really uh, a part of the Cold War between Saudi Arabia, who's the good guy, and Iran, who's the evil bad guy. And we'll kind of parse out a bit of that in a moment. But just as a sort of an explainer, you know, and this is a, a thumbnail sketch. 
But Yemen has long been the front line or the sort of playground between regional and world powers in um, in ostensibly a, a, a one giant pissing contest. If you you know if you want to get my my full uh, unbiased opinion it um you know it, it's just a it's a piece of a strip of land for regional and world powers to go and fight one another okay there's not really a lot of economic benefit within yemen i mean there obviously uh, you know aden is a huge port city in the 40s it was massive it was like the second biggest port I think during World War II, other than uh, New York, you know, that's how much was going on there. And obviously the Suez Canal is right there. So it is, you know, it is geostrategically, it is important to some degree. But there's not a lot of, you know, else going on. There's no resources really in Yemen. Um, there's not much, I mean, it's very rich in history. A very diverse community, obviously, religiously, ethnically. I mean, I, you know, to me, I always have a soft spot in my heart for Yemen having grown up with a lot of Yemeni friends when I was a kid, uh, growing up, uh, you know, very close to uh, some pretty prominent Yemeni um, neighborhoods as well. So I've always had a, a bit of an affinity for for Yemen. But, the, you know, it, it's, it was very much part of the Arab Cold War was fought in Yemen. And again, because it was sort of off and away, you know, it didn't have to directly affect anybody. And they could go there and basically just, you know, sow chaos and destruction and more or less get away with it. And, um, you know, and this is every, the British, the Saudis, Jordanians, the Italians, the Soviets, um, the United States, certainly. And, of course, big one, Egypt, have all been involved in Yemen. And as I said, this is um, much of the, the sort of Cold War that was fought in the Arab world took place in Yemen. And, uh, you know, it's been picked apart, various sections of Yemen, by the, the British, the Saudis, and obviously the Ottomans. Um, and the British and the Saudis, you know, back various sort of these phony royal – I mean, there, there's some truth historically to the, the, you know, these sort of royal families in Yemen. But, you know, they, they propped them up. Um, there was like the kingdom of Yemen in the north for a brief period. Uh, and by the early 60s, Yemen was more or less um, politically and culturally divided by North and South Yemen, although those were not necessarily official yet. Uh, but in 1962, there was the North Yemen Civil War, and this was fought between, um, you know, on one side, you had the Kingdom of Yemen, backed by the Saudis and um, the Jordanians and the United Kingdom, fighting against military rebels, um, of, uh, a part of the, the, the army in Yemen. Uh, they, and they were, uh, backed by Egypt, uh, you know, full, full all the way. And then to a lesser degree, the Soviets as well. And the North Yemen civil war was, was considered this Egypt's Vietnam. Uh, it, you know, it was a huge, huge endeavor. Uh, lots of Egyptians died, obviously countless Yemeni people died, uh, but it was it, it is considered in Egypt. It is considered their Vietnam. That's how military historians describe the North Yemen civil war, and that would eventually end in 1968 with uh, the rebels winning and forming the um, the Yemen Arab Republic. Okay, and then like almost immediately, you know, after that, you had South Yemen. Uh, which was a socialist state, they formed roughly 1967, backed by the Soviets. Uh, then they, then South Yemen and and the um, Yemen Arab Republic or North Yemen, 
they fought uh, uh, in 1972, then again in 1979, then in 1986 there was the South Yemen Civil War. Okay, very brutal conflicts all around, and again, various regional and world powers all kind of getting involved. So you have the Soviets uh, backing the South, you've got um, the, the Saudis in the North, and a lot of these sides are constantly switching around, you know, and, and everybody would get involved. You know, at one point, um, you know, the, the Israelis uh, covertly gave uh, arms and stuff like that to uh, to help the, the Saudi side in the North Yemen Civil War because at the time Egypt was involved there, this was under Nasser, and they hated the idea of pan, you know, Arab nationalism. They hated that, that Nasser was this unifying force, so they wanted to, you know, so again, the, the uh, Israelis, uh, you know, d- helped uh, their arch enemies, the Saudis. Um, which is, you know, just, uh, again, one of those just realities of, of the history here. Uh, then, uh, in 1990, there was a quote unquote unification of Yemen. Okay. And this was very tenuous. This is again after South and North Yemen had fought back and forth. Uh, you know, they'd been destroyed over and over again. Uh, lots of people switching sides. There was unification in 1990. This is under Ali Abdullah Saleh. He becomes the ostensible president of Yemen. Uh, doesn't really last very long, okay? In 1994, a huge civil war breaks out, okay? Uh, and, uh, you know, very brutal. This would be the last sort of major civil war in the sort of modern Yemeni history, 1994. But eventually at the end of this, you know, Saleh prevails Yemen remains a united country. It's not divided, even though obviously there is, um, you know, much of the civil war had to do with the fact that, you know, there was the southern movement. There, you know, there's just a lot of various groups that were all sort of vying for power. Uh, and all through this, they all switched sides. Allies fought against one another. I mean, there was a time, I can't remember the exact conflict now because there's so many of them. Uh, but, you know, there was a time where the U.S. was backing one side against the Saudis, Okay. So again, you know, it, strange bedfellows all around. And, and Saleh is very famous. There's a very famous quote by Saleh where he talks about, you know, ruling Yemen is like dancing on the head of a snake. Um, <laughs> in that there's, there's so many factions. And Saleh was definitely a master of playing everyone off of one another, of making alliances with people, breaking alliances, making new ones. I mean, this is a man. I mean, he was in power. For, you know, three decades or maybe a little bit more than three decades. Um, and, uh, you know, again, ousted in 2011, 2012, and then makes a deal with his, his former enemies, okay, almost retakes the entire country and then betrays them for the Saudis. But if we jump again, as we said, if we jump all the way to 2015 with the current civil war. Um, we, as I said, we saw Saleh aligning himself with the Houthis or Ansar Allah, which is the, the name that they go by um, as well in Yemen. And um, and obviously this is because the Houthis are the most powerful force. And um, quick bit of you know background information, as I said, the Houthis um, are uh, they are, are portrayed as being a, a Shia group, and that is true. They are Zadi, which is a sect of Shiaism. Okay, so they're not even, you know, again, we're already, this is already too complicated to, you know, for, for a, a news bite. But, um, you know, the important to remember that under Hussein al-Houthi, okay, 
um, who was one of the, you know, the leaders. He was the leader, the big, he's now immortalized. He was uh, killed uh, by the Yemeni government. But under Hussein al-Houthi, the Houthis as a movement became a revolutionary movement, uh, mostly based around the sort of anti-imperialist, anti-Zionist uh, rhetoric and political ideology. So you will see, you know, the, these famous Houthi signs are all over Yemen, where it's like death to America, death to Israel, death to the Jews, something. I think it, it's um, something along those lines. I mean, you get the idea. But they, they were this sort of – they did become a, a kind of like a revolutionary movement. And they were at one point, you know, very much about getting rid of the corruption. That's why they, you know, they were opposed to, to Salah. They were opposed to the Saudis. They were opposed to all of these different groups. And they did have a revolutionary political ideology. And for instance, I mean, they, you know, in the early days, um, back in like 2014, 15, when this is all happening, I mean, they, they – when Hadi fled, I mean, the Houthis were handing out food, um, particularly in South Yemen, which had basically been um, Salah and Hadi then uh, basically let Al-Qaeda, you know, uh, and Al-Qaeda in the Arabian Peninsula, AQ, uh, AP, basically let them have South Yemen. Um, they could do whatever they wanted. The Houthis, in part, were one of the sort of pacifying forces in South Yemen. They did go there. They set up checkpoints. There were lots of um, roads and, and highways that were just, you know, you were guaranteed to be kidnapped or murdered, or, you know, extorted for money or something. The Houthis did set up checkpoints. They made it safe for people to travel around there. They were able to, you know, push um, al-Qaeda and related groups out of, of strongholds in the south. And they did, you know, there was more or less calm and order in, you know, places like in Sana and Aden. The two, those are the two major cities in uh, in Yemen. Now, and, and you know, Saleh obviously saw this and understood this, and put a, put aside his, uh, you know, differences. He had fought the Houthis for decades. Um, I think it was uh, 2009 was the last major offensive against the Houthis. And I mean, that was totally, you know, Saleh. That was his, you know, he was uh, intimately involved in that and got a lot of aid from the Saudis. Um, you know, the, the Houthis themselves are from uh, a town or region called uh, Sada, which is right up in the north. It's right on the border um, with Saudi Arabia. So the Saudis have always been very tenuous or, you know, suspicious. They don't like the Houthis. Again, they're, they're Shia. They have this um, revolutionary fervor to them, which Saudi Arabia doesn't like. Um, they're opposed to American imperialism. They don't like the Saudis. They don't like um, uh, U.S. foreign policy. They're opposed to Israel. You know, all these sort of things that, of course, Saudi Arabia doesn't really want, you know. Uh, they see them much in the same way they see, like, a Hezbollah group. Um, especially too that the Houthis are political too. That they, when they took over, they were able to fill positions in the government and they were able to stop certain, you know, corrupt practices and things like that from happening. And as I said, Salah saw this, decided to give him a go. That relationship has always been very tenuous, so. And obviously, Salah was miscalculated hugely by deciding to switch sides and go to the Saudis. Now, some of this does stem uh, from the, the Saudis going after, uh, excuse me, 
from the Houthis going after various Saleh loyalists. Um, Saleh was also uh, back in 2011, 12? No, yeah, 12. There was a huge bombing uh, at a compound uh, where Saleh was. It was in a mosque that Saleh and uh, some of his military commanders and family were praying at the time. People will remember this was like the big thing that sort of brought about the, the sort of end of his rule. He got like 40% of his body was burned. Um, you know, he still had those scars. And apparently he had never really quite recovered from that. And uh, most recently, and I'll link up, there's some good articles on the um, Moon of Alabama blog uh, talking about this. But um, s- supposedly um, the uh, the Russians who are the only uh, foreign country, to my knowledge, that still have an embassy in Yemen, they had been sort of quietly in the background trying to figure, you know, negotiate and and um, you know work with all, all sides in the conflict. They had apparently gotten permission uh, from the Saudis, who control the airspace in Yemen, to send in some uh, surgeons and doctors because Saleh was very, very ill. It's some complications. He needed to have an emergency surgery done, uh, and it's believed that this stems back from this assassination attempt and the rumor is that they actually did it in the russian embassy and while that was happening Saleh was also sort of negotiating possibly maybe through the russians as an intermediary with various members of the saudi royal family and most likely this was probably with um mohammed bin salman although apparently they did not like each other at all and this is uh, again this is sort of you know inside baseball with uh, you know, Arab politics, but the, the, the sort of rumor is, I think it was one of Saleh's sons was like, got into like a screaming match or something with uh, Mohammed bin Salman. And, you know, it almost came to physical blows. So they, they've not loved each other, but the Saudis have basically, um, they, they've been playing all their cards. They, uh, well, we'll get to that in a minute, but anyway, uh, they have this surgery. And during that, the Houthis begin kind of rounding up more Salah uh, loyalists and whatnot. And I guess basically, I don't know. I mean, I think Saleh definitely saw the Saudis as his way out. Maybe he thought they could, he could win with them. At the same time, I think he saw the Houthis were beginning to uh, maybe not see him as, as quite so necessary. And anyway, um, Saleh continues to negotiate with Saudi Arabia. Eventually, Saleh changes sides, and we're where we arrive right now. Uh, Saleh is dead. His oldest son uh, and his likely successor, Ahmad Saleh, has been arrested. His other son, Khalid, uh, was reportedly injured in the attack in Sana'a and was also captured. Uh, the Houthis have, uh, you know, basically declared themselves the de facto leaders of Yemen. Uh, there is uh, a massive famine uh, already happening, and you know everyone keeps saying it's about to happen. The famine is already happening in Yemen, but it's only going to get worse. Like more than half the country doesn't have access to clean water. Uh, cholera and typhoid are beginning to pop up in massive numbers in Yemen. There's no food. Um, there's nothing. Uh, <laughs> uh, you know the, the the situation is only going to get worse uh, f- from now on. And, you know, this is – this in many ways is sort of indicative 
of uh, the way that Yemen has always been treated. It is this this playground for regional and world powers to kind of hash out their differences with one another. Uh, and we see this most apparent right now in Yemen, where the perception, again, is Iran and Saudi Arabia. Um, but, you know, in, in total disregard for what's actually the, the people of Yemen and the larger implications of all of this as well. Um, but we'll, we'll get to that in a moment because, uh, you know, I know I'm, I'm kind of jumping all over the place. But I, I hope that you appreciate how much there is to talk about with Yemen. I mean, there's so many factions. There's so much, you know, happening. There's a lot of moving parts here as well. But um, we're here, right? We're, we're where we are right now. Uh, Salah is dead. The Houthis are around. Um, so what, what's, what's happening here? A couple major takeaways. One, Saudi Arabia and specifically this moron, Mohammed bin Salman, are not as powerful as, um, you know, Thomas Friedman and others would have us think. Okay, and the killing of Saleh proves this. With all the military might of Saudi Arabia, with all the U.S. backing, uh, British backing, you know, uh, the world, you know, thinkers and whatnot spouting all this nonsense about how wonderful they are, they can't win. Okay, they they cannot beat a you know a ragtag group of uh, rebel Houthis. All right, so this again proves that Saudi Arabia. Uh, is not as powerful as it thinks it is or as many people out there think it is. Uh, the situation, as I said, is only going to get worse. I mean, that's an obvious takeaway. Um, but again, the Saudis and the U.S. can now use this as justification to go after Iran and further destroy Yemen. And, you know, this is something JP and I talked about in the first hour. But as we see the waning influence of uh, the U.S. and definitely in Saudi Arabia. I mean, their influence is just plummeting. Um, we and we see them that as a as it's plummeting, more extreme measures are being taken within Saudi Arabia. So we have this purge. You know, we've all of these people being rounded up, tortured, um, disappeared. Uh, you know, uh, we we have Saudi Arabia interfering in Lebanon's internal politics and in Yemen's internal politics. All this stuff. But, you know, the Saudis are now really kind of backing themselves into a – I mean, what else do they have? They, they were relying on Saleh to bring this to an end. That blew up in their face, okay? I don't think Mohammed bin Salman is the type of uh, person who's going to decide, oh, you know what? Forget it. I was wrong. Uh, let's, just, let's just call it a truce, guys, all right? Let's kiss and make up and forget this all happened. No, no, no. He's a, a spoiled, inbred, idiotic prince who doesn't really have any sense of the real world or how things work, okay? But, you know, he's spent his entire life having his ass kissed by everyone around him and being told he's so brilliant. One, You know, just like Trump, he's so brilliant. He's so, he's so smart. He, you know, he, he knows, you know, and as Thomas Friedman kept uh, uh, saying at the recent um, – uh, Middle East Conference, uh, what, Saban Center. You know, he's he's got balls. This is this is what makes Mohammed bin Salman real awesome. He's got balls. He's not going to back down. He now he he has to go. He has to double down on Yemen. This is his only course of action at this point. Um, you know, he doesn't want to look weak uh, at home or you know around the world. Uh, and you know he. He really, I, to my, to, in my mind, he has no other option. 
but to double down and, you know, really just, I assume, bomb the hell out of Yemen and maybe send in, more, you know, ground forces or more ground forces than they already have there um, and, and perhaps get more of a blessing from the U.S. And, of course, the U.S. will, it obviously has no problem with this. They, they I don't even think they really, you know, I, I didn't see anything from the State Department or White House officials, you know, even talking about Salah being killed. Um, you know, it's it's like a, it's, it's not happening. It's not. It's if it's not on Twitter, uh, it doesn't matter. And I think in a lot of ways, this, the the Houthis might have shot themselves in the foot here because now what can they do? You know, the Saudis are not going to back down. Um, the Houthis have, uh, you know, they they've killed a, a, a huge uh, rival, political military rival of theirs. But I mean, what's their next step? They've now they've got to take out all these other solid loyalists. They've got to deal with that. Um, and you know, increasingly, uh, I think the Houthis are, are losing some of, of the political ground that they had gained because of the war. Okay. Now this, and this brings us, um, you know, kind of to the, the larger picture that's at play here. And that is this, that this is a cold war between Saudi Arabia and Iran. And this, um, is of course a very beneficial tool for, um, uh, you know, the, the, the sort of evil empire of, uh, you know, of the West predominantly, because they're the ones really pushing this. Um, but it's a wonderful tool for them. Um, and of course, uh, we see many people that are supposed to be opposed to Western imperialism that are also using uh, this perceived connection uh, between Iran and the Houthis as justification. And, and I'll, I'll explain what I mean there. So uh, first and foremost, there's a lot of propaganda going on there about Iranian and North Korean arms uh, that, are, that are floating around uh, in Yemen. Uh, you know, here's a major issue with this. There's a massive Saudi blockade. Where are these arms coming from? Okay. Uh, again, then, then Saudi Arabia is not all powerful and the blockade is a joke. Uh, and apparently guns can get in, but not food or anything else. So, you know, where is it, you know, what is happening with this blockade? Second thing is Yemen has been awash with arms for decades. Okay. Maybe even centuries. All right. As I, as I stated before, I mean, this is a, a, a country, a region that has seen almost continuous violence, okay? I mean, we, we, I was only talking about, you know, like in the 60s, okay? But, I mean, you can go all the way back, um, you know, to the Ottomans and even before that. It was always a, a, uh, a you know, a, uh, a land that people fought over, okay? Especially in modern times, okay? So – the, uh, for instance, you know, you hear a lot of these reports of South, uh, North Korean missiles and things like that. Well, a lot of those were bought legitimately, you know, legally by Salah and other people, all right? And they had been in Yemen for years and years and years. And a lot of them were, um, you know, uh, tinkered with by various different, uh, factions and stuff in Yemen. Okay, but that's not like proof that North Korea is like shipping in arms. Again, with the Saudi blockade, how are they doing that? All right. And there are even U.N. reports that admit, well, they really don't have any proof that this this particular missile uh, was from North Korea or from Iran. You know, there are maybe some characteristics that um, make it similar, but there's no real proof there. But anyway, 
the headline, of course, is always Iran, Iran. They are this, uh, you know, evil force. They are, uh, supporting the Houthis. They're doing all these horrible things. Uh, you know, by, of course, it almost doesn't even matter who the Houthis are. You know, nobody knows that they're, they're not really just Shia, they're Zaidi. Okay. Uh, nobody knows where the Houthis are from in North Yemen, in Sada. Nobody knows that the Houthis actually have a, a revolutionary political agenda. You know, they're not this sort of crazy, um, uh, jihadi group or, you know, some sort of wild Iranian proxy. You know, again, you know, there is some comparison with, with somebody like, like a Hezbollah where there's actually a political ideology behind this. They, they actually have reasons, you know, for, for why they're doing this and, and why they're acting out. But that doesn't really matter because by extension, Houthi means Iran. Okay, and Iran means evil. Therefore, we can just sort of look, uh, we can, we can look the other way at whatever Saudi Arabia is doing. And JP alluded to that with his 60 Minutes piece that came out a few weeks ago, which basically just, you know, pretends like the U.S. has nothing to do with this. And, of course, um, it doesn't really matter what this conflict is about, okay? It doesn't even matter if the Houthis are actually the good guys, okay, and fighting uh, for freedom and democracy because Iran is the real ultimate, you know, backer and puppet master. It doesn't matter if they're good. They must be wiped out. That is the mentality of the West and particularly here in America. A quick note, there is not a ton of evidence directly linking Iran to the Houthis. Have they have they supported them in the past? Probably. I mean, I'm, I'm sure on some level um, they have. Uh, you know, they, they are, they are a Shia political group. Okay. They are opposed to Israel and the West and Saudi Arabia. Um, and, uh, you know, they, they do espouse a lot of the stuff that Iran finds desirable in other groups and, uh, countries and stuff that they back or use as proxies. But a, a very important thing here is, you know, the Houthis are a, like almost everybody in Yemen, are fiercely independent. Okay, the Houthis are not going to take orders from somebody. Um, the, you know, like most of the groups, like the Southern Movement uh, that wants to secede uh, from unified Yemen, the Houthis, the, lots of other groups. I mean, they're they're fiercely independent. They want to maintain their own independence, and of course, they they don't want to be beholden to anybody. Uh, and you know, that's evidenced by. You know how many times you know Salah and other people they had to switch sides with everybody because everybody is vying for power. So the idea that the Houthis would be doing all of this, you know, that the Iranians are pulling the strings, is just nonsense. I mean, again, it's 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 just another way of of viewing Yemen as this simplistic, stupid, backwards country. You know, where you've got a bunch of crazy Arabs screaming and chanting death to America and they're, they're really puppets of Iran and this is some global plot to spread Iranian jihadi whatever Sharia law all over the place it, it, that's that's this you know simplistic um, orientalist racist sort of ideology that permeates mostly in the West and here in America but that sort of disregards the whole the rich history of the Houthis as a revolutionary political movement. And I'm not saying I, def I, I like them or uh, I'm defending them. I'm just saying there's more to them than their Iranian proxies. 
Okay. The other thing is Iran is 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 quite busy. Okay. Uh, in Syria and in Lebanon. Okay. I don't. You know. And listen. You can if you go to Long War Journal or uh, especially you know they they're constantly posting pictures of um what's his Suleimani I think uh, head of the IRGC. You know, he's always popping up in Syria and, you know, uh, on the front lines in these fights and things like that. I mean, why is there nothing like that in Yemen? Okay? We, we don't see these reports of, um, you know, Iranian, uh, special forces or Iranian, uh, you know, spies and stuff like that, uh, IRGC members in Yemen. I mean, that, that's not really happening. Whereas it definitely in Syria. Okay, and and in in Lebanon, and I think that's because that's where they're really concerned. I think that again, um, there might be some minor support going there. I'm sure they're give, they've given them money. Um, I don't really think they need to give them arms because there's already so many arms in Yemen. You know, uh, I mean, it's almost like overkill. Uh, and I, I think on on some level, Iran kind of gives them the ideological support. You know, um, and of course, you know. Let's also, you know, kind of play devil's advocate here. Yeah, I mean, would Iran like to see the Houthis win? Yes, I'm sure. Okay, because that would be, uh, uh, you know, a thorn in the side of Saudi Arabia. And to, you, you're kidding yourself if you think that Saudi Arabia and Iran are not vying for power. They are vying for power, okay? There is a, a, a it's not even Cold War. I would say it's a pretty hot war between the two of them. So on some level, it does make sense that they are using the situation in Yemen, you know, as a, a, a battleground between the two of them. But again, the, the relationship between the Houthis and Iran is, is a lot more thin, okay? But it's a great soundbite, and it's a great way of simplifying what is an extremely complex situation in Yemen. And again, too, um, like, are we meant to believe that Salah, okay, was working with the Iranians, okay, and then instantly the Saudis were like, oh, you come back to us anytime, you know? I, I mean, honestly, you know, it doesn't, you don't have to be a geopolitical expert, but I, I, I mean, at some point you have to be like, I mean, do do allegiances mean anything to these people? So, you know, th- you got to think a little bit critically there. But, so, you know, one of my big kind of major uh, uh, problems with uh, the, the way that this is being portrayed, you know, again, this Iranian-Saudi Arabia thing, is that that is also being used by a lot of people, and, you know, mostly on the left, um, who have embraced this sort of ideology where because certain uh, movements or world leaders are standing up against Western imperialism. That means that they are therefore benevolent gods, okay, who are incapable of doing any wrong. And even if they do wrong, it's okay because it's justified because they are going up against the evil empire. And I've seen, you know, you see that with Syria where again, Assad is an angel apparently. Um, and, uh, and you see a lot of, and I'm not, you know, I'm not going to name names or anything like that. But you, you know, it's a lot of prominent people in on the left in the alternative media who uh, seem to I- embrace. Um, and it's not just Syria and Assad; it's Putin and Russia. 
it's Kim Jong-un in North Korea, and it's the Houthis in Yemen as these, you know, forces for good. And I understand the knee-jerk reaction to that, and I'm not saying that it's, you know, we shouldn't um, defend some of these people at times. You know, again, I, I don't think, you know, I, I, I'm not saying I love Kim Jong-un, but I, I don't necessarily think that he's hell-bent on destroying the Korean peninsula, and I don't think that we should carpet bomb, you know, his palace and all of North Korea. Uh, but that doesn't mean that you need to, you know, you can be opposed to Western sanctions and aggression against North Korea without rattling off how wonderful Kim Jong Un is, as if he's he's you know some uh, you know he's like the Martin Luther King, you know, or or or, or like the the you know the Nasser of of Korea. That's just that's don't kid yourself, okay? You know, um, that's just silly. And I see that a bit with the, the Yemen conflict. And I think that's one of the things that I'm, I'm actually quite concerned about. In, in, you know, one, on one, one side, obviously I think Saudi Arabia is going to up the ante with what's going on there. They have to. Okay. Um, but we're also seeing the Houthis becoming, I would say, a little bit more unhinged. Um, you know, the blockade, um, is, Definitely hurting the people of Yemen, okay? But don't kid yourself. This is a war, okay? And all sides do horrible things. Do you think the Houthis are really innocent of everything? Do you think that the Houthis may not even be involved in exacerbating aspects of the blockade because it helps them politically, all right? And, of course, while the you see these horrific images of – Children and uh, adults starving to death. Okay, you know the, the sort of hollowed out eyes and the you know I mean they're 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 dying. Okay, they're going to die. You know what I'm talking about? These people that are starving to death. The Houthis all have food. You know, uh, I mean, it, and I'm not I'm not saying that that it's some big conspiracy or something like that. But you know, don't pretend as if. This is all okay. It's a war. All sides are doing horrific things. That's how you conduct a war. And I, I fear that as we've become such a politically charged uh, uh, society, uh, more and more, where there is an ultimate good and an ultimate evil, and we must combat it at all costs, that people are I'm seeing it more and more embracing a side in this conflict without thinking about the fact that, well, you're picking a side in a war. Yeah, I mean, what, what happened to being opposed to war? What happened to thinking that the destruction of Yemen is one of the, the great tragedies that we're seeing in our lifetime right now and saying we should stop all of this? What happened to a, a political solution to the war in Yemen. It doesn't exist. There's nothing. There's not even the, the sort of vague rhetoric of it. I mean, the political, um, you know, negotiations in Syria, that, that's a joke, but they still happen at least. Okay. People still pretend as if that's, that's going to mean something. And, and maybe it will mean something, you know, further on down the line when Assad completely, you know, wins that war. But again, Assad winning the war doesn't mean he's a hero. Stop glorifying these people and groups because they're quote unquote opposed to 
you, you know, the Western imperialism and these ideologies. So I, I know I've said this before, but I, I see that beginning to really kind of take form more and more with Yemen. Uh, and it's, it's one of those odd things because you'll hear from a lot of people, well, there is no, you know, they, they, they will say that, the, well, you know, the Iranians are good, you know, because they're supporting Assad. Okay. Well, fine. Um, but they'll say, well, the Iranians aren't really supporting the Houthis. You know, that, that's, that's a Western myth. That's a Western, that's Western propaganda. But the Houthis are good because they're fighting the Saudis. So, you know, I, I mean, again, it, it's just sort of like, well, then none of this is all meaningless. It doesn't matter. You know, the Iranians could be behind it. it, it you, you actually don't really care because this is, again, uh, this has become a game for you almost. Um, and this is, I think, part of the larger problem with a lot of the stuff that goes on in Yemen where you have sides, you know, you there are so many divergent viewpoints and agendas that have been at play through the North Yemen Civil War, the South Yemen Civil War, the uh, you know the, the the Civil War in the 1994, the, the, there's the, the uh, Aden emergency. It was with the British uh, back in the uh, 50s and 60s, and really horrific things were going on. And you know, it's so easy for people. to, Well, we have to pick this this side over that side, or you know, the, the uh, well, the Houthis are okay because they're opposed to this this particular group. Uh, but what about the Southern Movement? Well, yeah, but you know, they they were aligned with this and that and the other thing. You And you kind of lose sight of the fact that this is just, a, a, as I said at the beginning, I think is just a one big pissing contest for regional and world powers and then, you know, and then local powers as well within Yemen for dominance, for political and economic dominance over the, the, the rest of the population, again, which is the poorest in the entire Arab world, the entire Middle East. You know, the, the, the Yemen is the poorest country. It's 